0: Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome everyone to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, And as a Louisiana born woman, I could not be more excited about the guest who is here with me today. If you have been following along with women's basketball, then there really is only one name in the room and that's Kim Mulkey. And she is sitting across from me in newsstand studios and we are gonna get right to our interview after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm sitting across from the incredible Kim Mulkey, who has a resume and a bio as long as my arm. But I wanna start off by just telling everyone a little bit about you. Kim Mulkey is the only person in college basketball history, men or women's, to win a national championship as head coach, assistant coach, and a player. She's the head coach for LSU's women's basketball team who recently won the NCAA national championship. She's been inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame and won an Olympic gold medal with the women's basketball team. Kim, what an
1: honor it is to have you here today. Thank you for being here with me. Well, I'm excited to be here and to listen to your mom introduce your show and to hear you talk. And now you gotta listen to this little country girl from Louisiana. This is only in New York can these things happen, but thank you for having me. (laughs)
0: Thank you for being here. I found out that Kim was coming for two days and it took everything that I had, every contact that we had to make this happen. So I'm honored to have you here and I can't wait to dive in. So start at the beginning, Kim. You grew up in Louisiana, tell us about where you grew up. Tell us about what it was like
1: growing up near Tikvah. Well, thank you for asking. Let's start where where I was born. People really don't know, but I was born in Santa Ana, California. My father was finishing up the Marine Corps at El Toro, and I'm not even sure if El Toro is still in existence, but I was born there in St. Joseph's Hospital, Orange County, and then my father and mother moved back to Tanchpaho Parish. So you and I probably have to do a little deal on parishes because we're the only state that has parishes versus Counties and grew up in Tanchpahoe Parish. If you wrote me a letter, it would have Tickfall, Louisiana on it. So basically, out in the country. But I went to the Hammond schools mm-hmm. and I went to church in Natal Benny, not all Benny, for those of you <laughs> listening from Louisiana, Natal Benny. Mm-hmm. So all of those communities are in Tanchpahoe Parish. And so, what was it like growing up there? What do you remember about your early childhood? We didn't live in subdivisions. We didn't have streetlights. We didn't have sidewalks. It was country living. Mm -hmm. My grandparents lived next door. As I used to say, I would walk through the pasture Mm -hmm. and I would skip over the cow patties (sighs) because they had cows. They were dairy farmers. Mm -hmm. My dad owned his own exterminating company and my mother had her own beauty shop, which we don't call them beauty shops or beauticians anymore, they're hairdressers. So my mother was there in the home with us and people would come and get their hair done and just a wholesome country life. And I learned at an early age following my dad, man, I like to compete. I would go to his little recreational softball games and basketball games and I would, always have a ball in my hand. Mm -hmm. And then when I was able, I think in fifth grade to play Dixie Youth Baseball with the guys, that was my first competition. I loved to roller skate. The very first trophy I ever won, I skated 23 hours and 55 minutes and came in fourth place. The three that beat me were adults. Wait, why did you roller skate for 23 Every hours? Every Friday and Saturday night, my grandmother would take me to the roller skating rink and from 7 p.m. to 10, that was what I did Yeah, growing up. Loved it. They had a marathon, a competition. And what you did is you skated for so many hours and then you would get a 10 minute break. During that last break, I must have been sleep skating and not realizing <laughs> it. And if you, yeah, if you stop, You're disqualified. And my grandfather walked into the rink and I just went up and started talking to him. And then I kind of woke up and said, I'm disqualified. But that was my first trophy. And I love roller skating. The roller skating was part of a competition, obviously, but
0: softball was your first real competitive sport. Well,
1: I played softball. You know, I would follow my dad's teams and he did it for recreational reasons. And then he would play in the summer, not summer, but the wreck there in Hammond, and Mm -hmm. I would just follow him. We really didn't have the bitty basketball and the summer softball for the little kids. Mm -hmm. So I never really got to do that. My first organized sport was as a 12-year-old. I played Dixie Youth Baseball with the guys in Hammond. And that was interesting, right? You said that playing with
0: boys was not something that people were doing at that time. Not
1: at all. In fact, that was my first taste of discrimination a little bit. I made the all-star team as a 12 year old and we went to the next round of the all-stars and I didn't get to play. They kicked me off the field, out of the dugout. And it was hard because as a 12 year old, you're thinking, because I'm a girl, I played with these guys all year. I was one of the first ones selected to the all-star team, but now we have a problem. Yeah. To make a long story short, I did what I was asked to do and stood outside the dugout. And now we know that girls can play Little League or Dixie Youth or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And the next two years after that, I played what was called Pony League, 13 and 14-year-olds. And I moved to second base and made the all-star team as a second baseman my second year in Pony League. And didn't have that issue when we made the all-star team. stay in the dugout then. Yes, and
0: could play. And then when did basketball become something? Because, you know, one thing that really struck me when I was reading about you, and I couldn't tell this from when I saw you on the court in Baton Rouge, but you're 5'4". So Let's put that half on there, 5'4 half 5'4 half okay, 5'4 <laughs> four and 5'10 and, and in heels, I think. Those are some serious heels. Yes. But I'm 5'11", mm-hmm. and was never talented at a basketball, but my entire life, people have said to me, Oh, you must have played basketball. To which I always reply, "Well, not well, but yes,
1: I did for a little bit." You were five four. How did this sport come into your life? I think I just played everything. You know, I didn't focus on basketball really until I guess you would say. High school, mm-hmm. I played it all, softball, baseball. When I got to high school, I did things in track. I played softball, volleyball, all those sports. It was just competition And that you then loved. basketball was really at that time the only one that gave full scholarships. Mm-hmm. And so in the summers in high school, I played on AAU teams, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, you'd say those traveling teams. Mm-hmm. And I did that both. Softball, I would travel with teams and then I would do basketball. And that's what I did. I just loved to compete. I played shortstop on traveling softball teams. And then right after my senior year, I received a scholarship to Louisiana Tech, which Mm -hmm. was the dominant program in Louisiana at the time. And of course, I did visit LSU growing up 40 minutes from the campus, but the best basketball in the early eighties was Louisiana Tech, Lady Texters. And we went to four Final Fours, and won two national championships. And then I stayed and got talked into coaching. Mm -hmm. My degree is in business. I graduated summa cum laude with a business administration degree and played for Pat Summit in the 84 Olympics. And after that, I won a postgraduate scholarship. I could have gone to any school that I wanted to. I just stayed at Louisiana Tech and was working on my MBA. Then president, he's now deceased, Dr. F.J. Taylor, sent campus police to find me in class and talked me into coaching. And I said, I will do it for you, Dr. Taylor, for one year and the rest is history. So let me talk about all of those years of competitive sports,
0: because I mean, you've just taken us through an incredible winning streak. And honestly, when you look through your resume and your bio, there's win after win after win. Were you confident in this entire time? Was this something that was building because of your time in team
1: sports? I think somebody asked me this question recently and they said, why do you carry yourself the way that you do? And I said, I would have to attribute that to two or three things. Your personality pretty much is what it is when you're born, but I think life's experiences make us who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so many things looking back on my life that made me who I am. I think integration Mm -hmm. hit in Louisiana and probably across the country. And I was going into second grade. Mm -hmm. And I remember vividly where at school, who my teacher was and sitting in that class the first day and go, where is everybody? all of my cousins and everybody, where is everybody? This doesn't look the same as first grade. And I remember coming back home and my mother, now you imagine this, sitting me down as what, seven and eight year old trying to explain what integration was and Mm -hmm. what was going on and where my cousins and all these people were. What an impact for her and my dad to make that decision that you will stay in public school. Not only will you stay in public school, each year you're going to be bused to a different public school because each grade went to a different public school. Mm. And the impact that that had on me looking back now was just tremendous. Yeah, I think getting kicked out of the dugout Yeah, and you being put on the spot, you don't have time to hide tears, you gotta be strong. And then lastly, I think you gotta have a little bit of inner toughness. Mm-hmm. And I think playing with the guys at a young age, playing Sports It made you tough. It teaches you life's lessons because not everything is going to be hunky-dory. I'm not going to win a championship every year. I'm not going to win every game. You learn how to pick yourself up. You learn how to play with people that are not brought up like you. Mm -hmm. You learn different cultures. And I think through my schooling, the teachers... You learn so much from teachers. And that's the main reason my mother, other than that was the right thing to do it during integration, she said, the best teachers are in the public schools. Yeah. And the impact those teachers, I can name every teacher, I can name every school. I'm 60 years old, I'm not supposed to remember all of that. Yeah. But it was so impactful. It's amazing because
0: I had Deborah Roberts on who grew up in rural Georgia Mm -hmm. and she is black and was talking about exactly the same time in her life and going in as a woman who was black into an all white environment and the impact that that had on her. And she's the same age as you are. And the conversation was very much the same, but from the other side about this completely different world, but also being able to rise up through it um, into a completely different path than the one she expected. And you speak about your teachers and she had one teacher that was very impactful for her. Was there any one person who stood out and really you can remember something they said or a confidence boost that they gave you?
1: There's not one, they were Mm -hmm. all good Mm -hmm. and they all said things. I could probably quote some of the things each one of them said to me. Yeah, I just won't ever forget it. In fact, it's so amazing. I have not seen my eighth grade basketball coach. Mm -hmm. Eighth grade, we were undefeated. And I get a call from her nieces, she wants to see you. So she's coming to see me because she's so proud of me. I'm back in Louisiana, she still lives in Louisiana, she's still alive. And I'm thinking, wow, that's gonna be fun to talk to her and see what I did that I have forgotten that maybe I did. You know, I never spent the night away from home, not one time growing up. Wow. I never missed a day of school. Now, you know how sick kids are now, and you told don't bring them to school if they have the sniffles. Yeah. We didn't have those kind of worries growing up, and you know, I had to go to school sick. Yeah. But I didn't want to miss anything. I was afraid if I missed something, it wasn't going to be at recess, and I wouldn't be the quarterback that day, (laughs) or I wouldn't, you know, be able to to answer a question. I didn't want to miss school. You didn't want to miss a second of
0: it. Yeah. I have
1: lived a remarkable life, but it hasn't been what I would just say this easy, you're pampered, no, no. No, you worked Um, for every part of it. absolutely, and loved it. I don't have anything that I can say was a tough time because I was just living life. I didn't know I was learning these lessons. The year before the Olympics,
0: there was another game that you didn't win, which seemed to actually be the first game that I can see that was of huge note that you did not win against the Soviets. Do you want to talk a little bit about
1: that moment and what that might have felt like after so much success along the way? The 84 Olympics is the games I participated in and it was in Los Angeles and Mm -hmm. the Soviets boycotted. And the reason they boycotted is that we boycotted, if you'll remember, the 80 Olympics. So it was like, you did this, now we're gonna do this. But we played the Soviet Union and one of the all time tallest players, Uliana Simonova, for those Soviet teams was like, she's a legend. Mm And I remember the first time I played against her and I said, I'm going to take a charge on her running down the floor. She was seven foot two. Oh my gosh. She didn't sprint like a deer. It took her time to get down. But the competitiveness in me is like, I'm going to do everything I can to get her in foul trouble. Yeah. Those are the games you're talking about. And I wasn't sure that we lost it because it was more games that were preparing each of us for the Olympics, because at that time they didn't know they were gonna boycott. Mm -hmm. But I tell you the one game, and this may be the game you're talking about, my Louisiana Tech team, we lost in the final four my senior year, Mm -hmm. and I played terrible. I had turnovers, missed shots. It was just, you don't wanna end your career that way, but we did, Mm -hmm. and I did. And I knew the tryouts for the Olympics was right around the corner. And all I kept saying to myself is I hope Pat Summit, who was going to be the Olympic coach mm-hmm. was not watching this game. And thank goodness it was not held against me. I was selected to be on the 84 Olympic team, but that was a concern. I'd spent all those summers traveling with USA basketball to become an Olympian. Mm-hmm. And that last college game was terrible.
0: Oh my goodness. I was talking to Allison Felix about this. She was on last week and I was asking her about what it's like to go to the Olympics when you have one shot mm-hmm. and really everything for her was leading to that. Every four years you have a one shot and what that felt like. So what did it feel like to win a gold medal?
1: Tears, those same joyful tears after winning that national championship at LSU this year and after winning all the national championships, I've been able to, to coach and win. I remember standing on the podium And then placing that gold medal and the national anthem being played, and then the tears just start flowing. And then what a blessing it was for me to have won a gold medal in our country. Yeah. Los Angeles. And it was, and that family and friends got to be there, and we lived up to the billing. We were the team to beat, and we pretty much dominated the Olympics so exciting. My gosh, what a life
0: experience. And this is at the beginning of your career. There's so much left. So let's go back to coaching at Louisiana
1: Tech. So that was what, a 15 year run for you? Coached 15 years and played there four years. So I spent 19 years of my life in Ruston, Louisiana. 18 years of my life in Southeast Louisiana. And I had never been to North Louisiana until I went on my recruiting visit. You know, where we're from in Southeast Louisiana, it's flatlands, it's swamps, predominantly Catholic religion. Mm -hmm. And then I go North and I'm like, are we still in Louisiana? Are you kidding me? Rolling Hills. It almost has that East Texas feel to it, the Bible Belt, very few Catholics up there. And I'm like, I can't believe we're in the same state. Yeah, And I spent 19 years, wonderful years in Ruston. What made you
0: finally leave? And you'd never been the head coach, you were the associate head coach, is that correct? And so the next step for you is then Baylor, which seemed like an unlikely choice because at the time, I think the record had been seven
1: to 20 the year before, is that correct? Yes. Why the jump? Well, here goes that confidence that you write about. Mm -hmm. I'd spent 15 years as an assistant and associate head coach, I thought I'm going to replace Leon Barmore, the head coach someday. He will retire and I will stay right there. I'm very, very loyal. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really loyal to a fault. Yeah. I had three opportunities to leave when I was at Louisiana Tech to become a head coach. And I visited those places and I don't want to use the word chickened out. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't ready. Yeah. I'm comfortable. Yeah. I wasn't ready. Mm-hmm. They say, you're gonna know when you're ready. I was then ready in 2000. Coach Balmore even stepped down and retired to try to encourage me to stay. And I would have, but here's where decisions and principles come into play in your life. New president, Dan Renault offered me a three-year contract to become the head coach. And I said, absolutely not. Five years will give me 20 years in the state retirement system. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, I'm following in the footsteps of a legend. Mm-hmm. You have to have security. It was about length of contract. It wasn't about money. Mm-hmm. And I explained all that to him. And I said, our second assistant just left a year or two before and got a five-year deal at Purdue. Mm-hmm. And five years, here I am, I'll stay. Yeah. Would not budge. I went and met him in person. I met with the AD and explained all of this and he offered a four year. I said, no. That's not what I said. <laughs> it will be five years. You <laughs>
0: repeat five or
1: nothing, yeah. I've turned three head jobs down mm-hmm. for larger amounts of money. This is a principal thing with me now, but it's also a protection thing. It's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't budge. And ironically, my phone rang. And it was the athletic director at Baylor. Oh my goodness. I know nothing about Baylor other than my previous coach at Louisiana Tech, who coached with Leon Barmore, had been the head coach there and she resigned and they only won seven games. And I said, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna visit. But I need to tell you, if Louisiana Tech offers me five years, I'm staying put. Yeah. I have children now. Yeah. I've got little kids now. Yeah. Kindergarten and third grade. I'm a Louisiana girl. Yeah. And he said, well, just come in case they don't. And I visited, we talked about contracts. He offers me the job. I wasn't going just to interview, or if I come, you're offering me the job so that I have a job somewhere. He said, yes. And I go back and I tell him, if I'm offered five years at Tech, I'm staying, Mm -hmm. but I'll let you know soon. And I came back to Louisiana Tech, met, in the president's office, cried, got on my knees and begged for a five-year contract with tears and snot flowing and wouldn't budge. And I got up off of my knees, literally now I'm not making this up, and out the door I walked and called the athletic director at Baylor mm-hmm. and spent 21 wonderful years at Baylor.
0: Wow, I wonder how much they regret that at Louisiana Tech. Well, I want to <laughs> say
1: this, Louisiana Tech, is in my heart always. Yeah. That's my alma mater. Yeah, of course. A decision that a leader at the university makes, he's entitled to that. Of course. Now, whether he would ever admit that he wish he would have <laughs> done that, he doesn't have to admit it. Yeah. That was a decision he made and leaders make decisions that they regret and sometimes they don't admit it. Yeah, I've never lost the friendships that I had at Louisiana Tech. Yeah, We stay in touch. I think I've been back there twice, but, the new athletic director is erecting a statue of me and five other former athletes to the entrance of their academic center. Amazing. So people recognize that, you know, Kim is loyal. Yeah. If she left, there is a principal reason. For and her that account. is the truth. There was there was nothing about money, none of that. Now you're going to ask me, well, why did you leave a dynasty at Baylor? Well, no, I actually want to know a little bit more about Baylor because I want to know
0: what it's like to go from being the associate head coach. Mm -hmm. And then in a way, you've had a confidence knock. They didn't give you the five-year contract. They gave you the four-year contract. So you go in there, ego's probably a little bruised whether or not you want to admit it at that point. You're like, we're going to start at Baylor. And then- what do you do on that first day? It's your team now and well, you've got nothing but anything to prove at that point.
1: Lydia, you are right on. What I did when I first got to Baylor, I cried myself to sleep for about two or three weeks. <laughs> that, yeah. And it, this was the question, are you being hard-headed? Yeah. Or is this truly the principle inside you and you know it's the right thing to do? Yeah. You have to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. There's yeah. an old country song that says that. Yeah. And after those two weeks crying myself to sleep in an old apartment that's no longer in existence at Baylor, I rolled my sleeve up and said, let's go to work. Mm. I was confident enough that I could schedule more than seven victories. Mm -hmm. They'd only won seven the year before. If nothing else, even if the talent is not there yet, we're gonna figure out how to find eight victories somewhere. (laughs) So we did. And we brought in talent that, I call them sleepers, mm. that nobody really had on their list as far as um, blue chippers or McDonald's All We couldn't go get those players at that time. Yeah. So I made sure that I thought outside of the box in who I hired. Mm. I wanted people who were gonna stay with me for a little while before pursuing their own careers, because it's gonna take a little time to do this. Mm-hmm. And man, two of those three assistants are still with me. All three would still be with me if I hadn't moved to Louisiana and one wanted to stay and be around his family. And he's now a head coach somewhere, but I just needed continuity every day. I needed us to be on the same page. And we snuck up and won a championship in five years at Baylor, won our first championship. What a day that must've been for you. And you want to really get a good kick out of it? Guess who we beat? To go win that national championship in 2005, the best team in the country was LSU. No, stop. In the semifinals, we played LSU. We were down 14 at half, came back and won the game, and then we beat Michigan State in the finals. Now, how crazy is that? That is crazy. But I guess, you know, you're playing
0: with the best. So at some point you were going to encounter another team of that regard.
1: Well, you know, the lesson I tell people about that first championship, and it's so true, the most talented teams don't always win championships. Yeah, It's the team that's playing the best together at the right time, has a little luck, makes the right play at the right time because LSU was by far the best team. They had Simone Augustus, the Mm -hmm. best player in the country. Sylvia Fowles, the best post player in the country. And Tamika Johnson, the best point guard. And I took one outfit to the final four (laughs) because we didn't expect to beat them. We were just so elated to be in a final four. And then when we beat them, I had to- Go shopping? Well, ironically, (laughs) Jennifer, one of my assistants who you've met, She stuffed an outfit in her suitcase that she saw on a mannequin in Dillard's in Waco, Texas. And that's what I wore. It was a baby blue suit. Oh my goodness. And I could fit in it. So I had fans and friends run out and find shoes to match it. And that's what I wore.
0: Let's talk about your fashion for a second, (laughs) because I was going to ask this kind of at the end, but you know, I tell a story in both of my books about When I started as an auctioneer, I was following men who were always in black tie. So everyone always expects a male auctioneer on stage and especially in the art world, they always expect a man in black tie. And so when I first started going out over 20 years ago on stage late at night, I would always wear black suits. Mm -hmm. You know, I had an Ann Taylor Mm -hmm. loft suit or just Ann Taylor, I think at that point that I wore every single night. As I became more confident in my skills, as I gained more confidence in what I was doing, I dropped all of that. And Mm -hmm. now if you see me on stage, I think when I told you the first time I saw you out there on the court in your sequin outfit, I felt nothing but kinship because Mm -hmm. I understand what it's like to use fashion
1: almost as armor
0: in a way. Yes. And I noticed that about you. So where did the fashion start for you? Where did that become part of your legacy?
1: Well, I'm gonna back up a little bit. Let's go back to when we were talking about growing up and going to school. Uh Every August before school started, my mother and I would get in a vehicle and we would travel to Baton Rouge and go to God Oh yeah, of course. No longer there, yeah, but the, God yeah. And she and I would spend the whole day and I could pick out any clothes I wanted for school. And I'll never forget, I was always so conscious of money. Mm-hmm. And I'd say, mom, can we afford this? Mom, are you okay? She would always say, pick out whatever you want. Now I'm talking like, Elementary school, so I always wanted to dress neat. Mm. I just always wanted to be neat and clean and sharp looking, and that's never changed. Mm. When I was an assistant at Louisiana Tech, I used to wear skirts and dresses. When I became a head coach, I realized, "Uh uh-oh, I can't do this anymore because I squat a lot. You
0: do squat. I mean, you must have thighs of steel. Yeah,
1: I'm like, I can't do this. I can't sit here and worry about my dress. You know, so I quit doing that and. I would always buy nice outfits. Mm -hmm. And people knew that about me. And then when I got to Louisiana and coaching LSU, my assistant, Jennifer, who likes fashion, she was in a boutique. And the owner of the boutique said, "'We are so excited. Coach Kim is back in Louisiana. We know she's a Louisiana tech girl, but do you think she would ever wear any of the stuff I have in here?' And she said, "'Well, all we can do is ask.'" Mm. Well, they didn't ask. They unloaded all of these clothes (laughs) at my house. So they guilted me into it. I fought it off for a while. I'm 60 years old, but coach, you know, we love this in South Louisiana. We love feathers. We love leather. We love sequins. We love sparkles. I mean, coach, think about our culture here in Mardi Mardi Gras Gras. and we... So it wasn't just the assistant and the boutique owner. Then it became the lady who did my hair and makeup. So. I'm getting hit (laughs) at at all angles. And so I would try a little one. I'd say, okay, well, let's try this sparkly one. And Mm. so Queen of Sparkles, she is an LSU graduate and chemical engineer. Mm. And she was working in the plants and got tired of looking at the overalls and the coveralls. And so she started just kind of dabbling in dressing up her overalls and her guys that work in the chemical engineering plants. And that's how she got her start. And now she's the owner of Queen of Sparkles. Oh my goodness. So we do that all last year. Well, this year it kinda just goes to a whole nother level and they drop these jackets off from another LSU person who's in the fashionista world, but it's a little bit even more-
0: Elevated. Yeah, feathers (laughs) and,
1: and I'm like, no, can't do that. Come on, I'm 60 guys, I'll get laughed at. And they're like, no. And they made me think. We become set in our ways as we get older some things will never change with me. My morals will never change, my values, the disciplining of my teams will never change. But you need to understand your team and your your players are changing. I can't coach some of these kids and motivate them the way I did 20 years ago. So they made me think along those lines of, if you will wear things like this, you're going to attract people to your sport that don't give a flip about basketball. Mm. And I thought, hmm. But what I didn't want to happen is to be a distraction. Yeah, I want them to come and learn the game. So I thought for many weeks, if I bring a fashionista woman and she buys season tickets, one, she's bought season tickets, which is a good thing. Two, you can't help but watch on the court what's going on and learn something. Right. So if nothing else, I'm selling season tickets and I'm teaching the game indirectly to someone who doesn't give a rip about it. Mm-hmm. But maybe next week they'll send their daughter to camp and they'll go, you know, that player, Alexis Mars, she's a point guard. Do you know what a point guard is, darling? And she's teaching the game. And so that's how I really taught myself into doing it. Yeah. And, That works. That's the story. It it absolutely works. That's the
0: story. There's no question. I told you that my oldest daughter, we went to see the game when we were in Baton Rouge against Michigan, and she's never wanted to play basketball. And after that game, not only could she tell you every player out there, she knows exactly who you are. And when I told her that you were coming on the podcast, her (laughs) face, she was like, well, are you gonna wear sequins, mom? And I did think about it. I am not wearing sequins, everyone, but I am wearing purple for LSU. Um, Okay, go back to Baylor for me. So you build this powerhouse at Baylor. Mm two questions that people actually DM'd me when they found out you were coming on the podcast that I want to ask. First and foremost, how do you pick the players? Like, what is it about the players? What are you looking for? Obviously, it's part of a team.
1: Right. You are position. What do we need? Do Mm -hmm. we need more wing players, perimeter players, or those outside? Mm -hmm. Do I need a point guard? Do I need post players? You look and see what you need. Mm -hmm. Then you evaluate what their talent is. Okay, this point guard's gotta score the ball a little bit, so do we want her do we want a game manager that just distributes it Mm -hmm. and gets all the assists? Okay, do I want six five or bigger or am I willing to take a face the basket post player that can take them off the dribble? You evaluate Mm -hmm. their individual talents and then you try to go, okay, which one do we need for our particular team? Mm -hmm. Role players are important. What's a role player? That's one that may not start, Mm -hmm. but she comes in and makes a difference in the game. Mm -hmm. She's possibly got a three point shot and nobody else in the country has that shot. Got it. She may not be quite good on defense, but we have to play her because she's a threat from the three. And if you're a threat from the three, then you're gonna have to be guarded and you're gonna open it up for Angel Reese not to be doubled and triple teamed all the time. Mm -hmm. So role players are important, good locker rooms are important. Now that is a tricky one Yeah. because you can sit in homes, you can talk to guidance counselors, you can talk to principals, and you still may not know that kid. But then you also may know some instances of that kid having some trouble in the past, but you're willing to give them a second chance. Mm. Alexis Morris, I kicked her off my team at Baylor and she wins a national championship with me young people are gonna make mistakes, mm. but you have to feel confident in that they need you in their life and they want you in their life as their coach. Yeah, Chemistry is very important. Every team has problems. Mm-hmm. Every team, but see, y'all don't see that on the court. Mm-hmm. It's the coaches that can solve the problems in the locker room. What are the problems? It could be you have to discipline two players fighting. It could be breaking curfew. It could be not showing up for a tutor. It could be any of, you you can imagine what coaches have to deal with. College age students. Absolutely. Testing all the boundaries. And I always say this, those coaches who don't look the other way, Mm. but solve it and hold them accountable are the ones that end up having great locker rooms. That's kind of what we do in staff meetings, just discuss different players. Is she a good fit? Is she not a good fit? Sometimes the ones that are not good fits for other teams, I want them <laughs> because that's the hard headedness in me and the challenge that yeah. I'm gonna make that kid a better person. I'm gonna hold her accountable. I'm gonna make her a better player and she's good. Do you think every player is coachable? I think some want to defy you a little bit, mm. but I can tell you this in my coaching career, It's never been about defying you on the court. Got it. They believe in what we're telling them. Yeah, and they do what we ask them. What I think defying you is is they might think they can sneak out at curfew and not get caught. Yeah, they're kids. Yeah, or they may miss that tutor, and they think I'm not going to hold them accountable. Every young person makes mistakes, and I tell them this: a mistake is not a mistake until you make it twice. And they go, "Fair enough." Yeah, and I said. It's the same way in how I raise my kid. You're not going to be perfect. But if you're defiant and you continue to do it over and over and over again, it becomes disrespectful.
0: There's been so much said about how much you've been able to integrate education and making sure that your teams are operating at the highest level and getting that education. And it's interesting because at the beginning of this, you talked about going to mm-hmm. school every single day. And it's that discipline that we're seeing time and time again, showing up, doing the work, every single time. Is that what you're telling your players or is that, that probably is not what you always see when they walk in the door?
1: In the perfect world, same way with raising your three and me raising my two, mm-hmm. we want to have this straight A student. We wanna have everything perfect.
2: Yeah. That doesn't
1: happen. Yeah. So in sports, you're going to have players who come from a hard background, single parent. You're gonna have those that come from two-parent households, but they never pushed academics. Then you're gonna have the perfect ones. Oh yeah, yeah, straight A student. That's life, it's real. I take a little bit of all of it, but here's the thing I tell them, I cannot promise you a national championship. I cannot promise you a conference championship. I can't even promise you playing time. Yeah. But what I can promise you, I will get you a degree if you do your part. It may take some five, six years. Some may come back and get their degrees. Mm -hmm. That's important to me. I don't care if you graduate summa cum laude, if you barely get by, I want you to have a diploma. That is my gift back to her and to her family. Right, of course. And I have had every player that has finished their career with me, some have transferred out, but those that have been in my presence have graduated. What a gift. Some have to come back and do it, but you stay on top of them and encourage them to do it because they don't realize basketball is not gonna last forever. Yeah. But there's something about that degree. And I tell them this, when you go and get a job, they don't look at your GPA. They just say, put your resume on my desk and they'll go, oh, this kid graduated from LSU. Oh, this kid graduated from Baylor. That's all people want to see. They don't sit there and judge you on 4.2.1. You have a degree. And and if you don't think it matters, I can assure you it matters to people who employ you. And I tell them this, they won't tell you that, but your presence and how you present yourself, first impressions do matter. Mm-hmm. They can't tell you that because it's discrimination. So I try to teach them, you do what you want, but let coach just interject this before you leave me. How you go about that interview, it matters. Yeah, it all And I matters. tell them that. I said, now, when you get that job and they see how darn good you are, you can dress however you want, you can do what because they know your heart. But if they don't know your heart and they don't know your soul, first impressions, go a long way and I'm not telling you that that's right, but I'm telling you that's human nature. Let's talk about what you mentioned briefly before. You
0: left the powerhouse of Baylor Mm -hmm. to come back to Louisiana. How did that happen? If we talk about a legacy that could have been Baylor very easily. LSU, not a known quantity at that point in the same regard. So what did that take? What was that call like? How did this start?
1: I told you earlier, I'm loyal to a fault. I, meaning we, my coaches and players, we built a dynasty, 21 years at Baylor, 11 Big 12 championships in a row, and then another one or two along the way, 23 or 24 total Big 12 championships, if you count the conference tournaments, three national championships, coaches don't leave that. Yeah. (laughs) So how it all came about was the LSU job came open. I think people like gossiping and rumors and talking, and I would get phone calls, and have you talked to LSU about, I said, no, I haven't, you know, I'm not looking to leave. I'm well taken care of at Baylor. I don't think LSU would make that kind of commitment that Baylor has done. My kids, you know, are grown now, but it was a gut feeling that didn't happen overnight. It was something that felt right. And I waited about six days until I could get my players back on campus. I met with the athletic director at Baylor. I listened to the athletic director at LSU. The LSU AD didn't have to talk long. What is he going to tell me, Lydia, about Louisiana? Yeah. you can't tell me anything about that state. I know everything about it. The conversation with the Baylor athletic director lasted about 40 minutes. And I realized after meeting with him that I need to go back to Louisiana. Yeah. Without going into details, it wasn't a bad conversation. It was just what I was looking for out of his mouth never came. And it just tells you, okay, it's time to go. Yeah. The hardest part was telling the team. Yeah, I'm sure. It lasted five minutes because there was nothing more to say. Tears were flowing. I couldn't make them understand. And I just told them, I'm going home. That was all I've told the media. I'm going home. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going back to take care of a parent that's older and ill. I'm not going back because LSU is my alma mater. The state of Louisiana is my home, and I was going back home.
0: Well, let's just go to the Final Four moment. When you find yourself in the Final Four, did you expect nine players who were not
1: returning? They were all new. One returning player, is that correct? One starter one returning. And a couple of kids that didn't get to play very much but were so valuable to our team No, heavens no. I thought when we won it within five years at Baylor was ridiculous. We lost two games. We got hammered at South Carolina. We lost our mojo against Tennessee in the conference tournament, 17 point lead. And yet I knew we were really good, but no way are you sitting there having these kind of expectations in your second year. Things started happening. You know, the number one team, Indiana, in our region gets beat by Miami on their home floor. And then we start winning. And then the Utah player misses two free throws. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? (laughs) And it just kept going and going and going and going. Yeah. I just couldn't quit crying. When a minute 32 left in that fourth quarter, we were up 17 or whatever, we were up. And I said, we're getting ready to win a national championship. And I looked across the court at all those LSU people going nuts. And then I saw my grandchildren and they were screaming and hollering and they're only four and two. I lost it. I know. I remember seeing oh, that on I TV. Lost it. it was so great, and I was trying to fight it off. You know, I'm an ugly crier. No, I don't stop. cry much, but when it comes, it's not one of these sniffles. It's like, ah! And it was, ter- but it's so great. It's such amazing emotion. You know, it's so
0: wonderful yeah. to see somebody who's overwhelmed because I think that's how we all felt. And I told you when you walked in here, I didn't really know anything about the women's basketball mm-hmm. program at LSU. I was home visiting my parents in March for spring break, and our neighbor was taking their daughter. I have two daughters and a son, and I. Said, Said, oh, we'll come too. And we walked in and my mother had talked about you. My mother, who is British and I don't think has ever watched a basketball game in her <laughs> life, talked about you with such reverence. And we walked into our seats and I remember you coming on the court and these incredible women coming out there and winning that game. And I loved how they kept coming back to you and they were looking to you for guidance. Yeah, and yeah. you know, when we think about women at this age, in their college age, it's such a formative time, it's such a difficult time mm-hmm. in the world that we live in. I mean, social media is so vicious. Oh. What would you say to someone who is that age? What do you say to your players to motivate them and to remind them to be confident in who they are?
1: Well, I think who I am makes them confident. They watch how I react to things. They watch how I motivate. They watch how I get on them. And you're basically treating them and doing things that you would do to your own children. Yeah. and. I have people around me, Lydia. I don't wanna learn social media. I have zero accounts. We have accounts that have my name on it, but that's what my assistants control. I don't wanna learn that. It's vicious, it's awful. I get it, but I'm not gonna spend time doing that. But I do understand that's who they are and part of their life. I want them to be who they are But I want them to leave me and go, I remember her saying this was gonna happen in our lives. And what did she do in that moment when it happened in her life? If it's divorce, I'm divorced. Mm. I won't ever get over that. I feel like a failure. Mm. But I had to pick myself back up and make sure my own two children understand I'm a big proponent of marriage and you're not gonna be a statistic and teach them. I don't want them to feel like they've got to be me, be who you are. But there are things that you can take from my personality so that when I'm no longer in your life every day, you might can remember something that helped us get through it as a team. And that's what you try to do. And the worst thing coaches and leaders can do is don't be prepared. And you know, we've all had bad teachers. We've all had bad coaches. I just always wanted to be prepared yeah. because you can't hoodwink young people. Yeah. You look them in the eye and you let them feel you. I think the greatest compliment that I hear from them is that lady is real. Yeah. So I take that as they allow me to say things to them that a lot of coaches are afraid to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why am I comfortable in doing it? Because I've lived it. Yeah. Let's go back to integration. Yeah. I can say things to them about race stuff that most white women wouldn't say to a team that's predominantly black. Mm. And they go, oh my God, you sound like my grandmother. Yeah, Not afraid of it because I want them to be able to leave me and go work for anybody in this country. I just want them to go. She's taught us, she's prepared us well. You want uh, them to succeed. Absolutely, yeah. and and what is success is not making millions of dollars. No. What is success? It's not winning a national championship. Every one of them are gonna have successes and obstacles in their life. That's what we do. Yeah. But I want them to use their basketball and what we've put, taught them in that locker room and on that court to go, okay, pick yourself back up. I used to have a sign in my office it just says, put on your big girl panties and deal with it. <laughs> and they it always made for great conversation. Yeah, of course. Uh, and I need to find that. I think it's in storage, but somebody gave it to me. said, Kim, that's what you do. Yeah. And I said, okay, I like that. I like that too. Well, Coach Kim, I cannot
0: thank you enough for spending so much of your time with us. There have been so many great lessons I know that the listeners will take from this. Where can we find you? What are we looking forward to in the next year? What's coming up?
1: Well, we're in the off season now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not a coach that gathers her team and man, we work for six to eight weeks in the summer. No, because we have players that are going to be invited to USA tryouts for different teams. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have freshmen that are going to be coming in and they're going to be scared and homesick. So we kind of take the summer months and do some individual work Mm -hmm. on the court with players. But this is my time to get away and relax and be with my family and, our season is so long. Yeah. I don't want to burn out. I don't want them to burn out. So we're in the off season. Next year, of course, we're going to be one that's Chasing talked- that national <laughs> championship for uh, Yeah, uh, yeah we are, and yeah. we're going to be talented, but yeah. we're not going to be the same team. Bringing yeah. in new transfers right. from other schools that are talented, and I've got to get them all in that locker room in August. Yeah and uh, see if we can't uh, continue to do what we're doing. It's fun, it is fun. We are gonna be cheering
0: for you all the way. I can't thank you enough. And for those who are listening in, I've had such a wonderful time talking to Coach Kim Mulkey, just won the national championships for the LSU women's basketball team. And I'll leave you with this one thought. What are you gonna do to be real like Coach Kim? The next time you're in a situation where you're thinking about maybe not saying the truth, What if you tried the opposite? Again, I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you again next week.